The Grazadio School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. Hello and welcome. My name is Rick Gibson. I'm the Associate Vice President for Public Affairs here at Pepperdine University. I am joined today by Dr. Linda Livingstone, who is the Dean of the Grazadio School of Business and Management. Welcome, Linda. Well, thank you, Rick. It's good to be here today. Well, I understand that the Dean's Executive Leadership Series is uh, going uh, full force and is uh, a great event. How's it going so far? Well, we've had an excellent series this year, having folks from entertainment, from banking, from healthcare. Uh, so lots of variety and some really fascinating conversations have taken place. Absolutely. Well, tell us about your guest today. Well, we're very excited about Ned Barnholt. He is really an icon in Silicon Valley. He was the founding CEO of Agilent Technologies, which was spun off from Hewlett-Packard. And he had been with Hewlett-Packard since 1966. So he's really seen it all in Silicon Valley. Well, I really look forward to this conversation. Let me invite our listeners to sit back and relax and to enjoy this conversation with Ned Barnholt. Well, it's a pleasure today to be here with Ned Barnholt, who was with Hewlett-Packard for 30 years and then was the kind of uh, founding president and CEO of Agilent Technologies. 33 years. 33 years. Oh, excuse <laughs> me. Goodness. Uh, as it was spun out from HP. So, Ned, we appreciate you being a part of our Dean's Executive Leadership Series. Thank you. Good to be here. So you talked about 33 years with Hewlett-Packard, and that's kind of a rarity today for people to have that long of a career with one company. It was probably fairly common at HP when you were there. But talk a bit about that culture and kind of your evolution through the ranks at HP and what it was that kept you there for that long. Okay. <clears throat> well, I joined HP in 1966 when the company was about $200 million mm-hmm. of revenue and about 3,000 employees. Uh, I started in research and development, but after a couple years, I knew I didn't want to spend my life with my soldering iron, so I wanted to get out and meet real customers and interact with more people, so I moved over to marketing. But um, but over those 33 years I was with the company, um, the company uh, really grew a lot. When we split off Agilent, it was $45 billion in revenue mm-hmm. and 125,000 wow. employees. Uh, we had gotten into computers and printers and all these new businesses. So the company changed a lot, it grew a lot, um, but at the same time, um, a lot of the values, a lot of the management philosophies were still uh, very very similar to what it was when I started. Um, I think the thing that really uh, attracted me about HP was the culture, the fact that uh, it was a, a very, more of a um, down-to-earth uh, culture where people, very informal, uh, there was a lot of decentralized management uh, decision-making. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dave and Bill didn't believe that decisions should be made by them. They pushed decision-making down to the people who really knew the most about the business to be able to make decisions. And, uh, and I was fortunate that I was given a lot of opportunities at a fairly young age. I was a division manager when I was in my mid-30s, had a chance to start a division from scratch in Spokane, Washington, Build it up to about a thousand people. Came back, started up a new business, a new uh, group here in, in uh, the Bay Area. Then moved into the the overall combining all the measurement uh, businesses into one sector for the company. 
So I had a lot of opportunities. So I often tell people that in 33 years I had the career that most people have in terms of the variety and the differences and the challenges, but all within one company. I started businesses, I managed mature businesses, I turned around businesses, I uh, had a chance to start new divisions, but all the time within the same uh, environment uh, of HP, which, which I found very, very stimulating and very exciting to be part of. So what was kind of the secret to them maintaining that kind of culture from growing to such a large company? Oftentimes companies sort of become much more bureaucratic, less innovative, less entrepreneurial, and that didn't seem to happen to HP during that stretch. How did they sort of maintain the original sense of the culture as it grew? Well, there was a lot of, um, a lot of, a lot of training, a lot of, um, a lot of uh, communications around expectations, but people often ask me, well, why was HP so successful over that period of time? And, and I think there was probably four things that stood out for me. One was the, um, a decentralized management structure where they, they really did push decision-making down to people who knew what they were doing and could make good decisions. And, and as a division manager or even an R&D manager, I felt responsible for my little business inside this big company to the same way I would as if I was running my own company. And that, uh, and that was motivational, but it also, I think, uh, allowed us to, to, um, to be pretty nimble and entrepreneurial, even in a bigger organization. I think the commitment of the company to uh, innovation and, and contribution and staying at the leading edge of the technology curve, a commitment to advanced research, always looking over the horizon, looking for new technologies that could impact the company, like printers and things that came out of our advanced research. And then a, a real focus on hiring and retaining the top talent. As a manager, I spent probably 25% of my time uh, in recruiting and and um, and managing talent. Uh, I used to go out and do campus recruiting mm-hmm. on university campuses even when I was a division manager. We didn't have HR people do it. We each, you know, each manager was responsible for doing the recruiting. So I think those were four things, but, but it's true that as the company grew and as the businesses mm-hmm. changed, um, it was harder and harder to keep that same entrepreneurial feeling. Uh, in the measurement business that I was part of, it was a lot easier to have different divisions all responsible for different pieces mm-hmm. of the business. You know, when you're in the computer business, you can't take a computer and divide it uh, and divide it into 20 divisions. You've got to have one operating system right. and one, you know, one um, set of hardware. So it became much harder. And I think uh, certainly as HP grew into some of these newer businesses, uh, it was more difficult to keep that same entrepreneurial, um, nimble spirit. And um, and I think. Uh, Again, I don't know what it's like today, but I would I would imagine at the size the company is today, it's it's certainly different than what I experienced in my first 30 years. So you were there for 33 years, and that's the point in people's careers where they often decide, well, it's, I'm ready to retire and go play a little golf or go buy a boat or whatever. And that was when you took over the role of spinning off Agilent Technologies and kind of doing this entrepreneurial venture outside of the the big company umbrella. What motivated you to do that at that point in your career? Well, it was the challenge. I mean, it to me, um, it, you know, it was actually kind of a mixed blessing in some way because it was very sad. Uh, we spent a lot of time in the late 90s thinking about it. 
uh, how, um, how do we kind of rekindle some of the growth in HP? HP's growth rates had slowed down. Uh, people in the uh, analysts and people in the um, industry were saying, well, GHP has, has um, kind of lost its way and missed the internet and didn't do a lot of things. So we spent a lot of time thinking about how to, how to re-energize the company. And when we started looking at uh, splitting the company, it wasn't so much the size that drove us to split. It was more the complexity because our business was very different than the computer businesses and certainly the printer businesses. But once we decided that HP would be better to be more focused on the computer and printer business and we would be more focused on the kind of the high value added measurement, mm -hmm. scientific measurement businesses that um, it made, we decided it made sense to split. And at that point, um, it was, it was I thought, going to be a great opportunity and a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And the first year was fun. We had, we, it was such a challenge. In the first um, six months or three months after uh -huh. we announced the uh, split, we had to split 600 real estate sites, uh, about 10,000 patents, <coughs> 16,000 shared infrastructure people that we had to assign to one company or another. We did all that in three months. We uh, uh, came up with a name. We, we, we did our IPO. It, I mean, people were so energized. Oh, and yeah. we, had, we had a lot of fun. <coughs> and then... Um, that was an exciting time. It was an exciting yeah. time. And I think all the employees that were there uh -huh. and went through that would look back and say that was a real highlight. So for me, it was the challenge. It was the opportunity. It was, the, it was somewhat the opportunity to start something mm -hmm. from scratch. <coughs> Excuse me. We um, <clears throat> used to say that you know, Agilent was an $8 billion startup because we had $8 billion right. in revenue, mm -hmm. but, but everything else was new. We could do anything we wanted. Nobody was telling us what we had to do. So what we decided is that we wanted to build the company on the values and culture of HP, but we wanted to do everything with more speed, more focus, and more accountability. And, and that so, was our mantra. And then after that first year, the, that was when the Internet bubble <laughs> burst in a, in a big way up in this right. part of the country. How did that change how, where you were going and how you thought about running the company? Because it wasn't anything that people sort of had anticipated, certainly at least not in the major way that it happened, and certainly had a significant impact on Agilent along with many other companies. Well, it was, it was really a, a challenging time. We, <clears throat> we grew about 40% our first year as a mm -hmm. public company in 2000, uh, and um, we, were, we were just racing to catch up. It was in the middle of probably the first quarter or so of 2001 that the bubble burst for us, and mm -hmm. our revenues dropped um, 60% in three quarters. Yeah, it was dramatic. And uh, so it was, it was tough because um, we, after separating from HP, we knew our cost structure was so high, mm -hmm. was too high. As part of the separation from HP, uh, we weren't as, as lean and mean mm -hmm. as we probably could have been. And we knew we had to work on that, but when we were growing 40% a year, we didn't have time to, mm -hmm. to fix all those problems. We There's also, not as much of an incentive in that kind of a yeah, climate exactly. to do it either. It was, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no. And then um, in hindsight, I think we were probably undercapitalized. We had too mm -hmm. little cash because the assumption was we would generate so much mm -hmm. cash, we didn't need a lot of cash. Well, turns out when we grew 40%, we didn't generate as much cash as we needed to, as we wanted to, because we needed it for mm -hmm. working capital. And so we were short on cash. We were over uh, extended with our expense structure, mm -hmm. and then the revenues dropped sixty percent. So, 
it was really dicey there for a while, and we, we had, fortunately, a little bit of money in the bank. But uh, we, ha we knew we had to resize the company, and that was a very, very mm -hmm. difficult and challenging uh, decision, particularly on the heels of a 40% growth sure. the year before. So, um, but we worked hard, and, and I think people, I'd say around Agilent, everybody got it. Everybody understood that with 60% drop in revenue, and with a limited amount of cash, you have to do something. And mm -hmm. I think nobody disagreed that we had to restructure and resize the company. It was questions about why them or why their organization, mm -hmm. but, um, but that was a very painful and, and difficult sure. time. So as you reflect back on that period of time as the leader of the organization, I mean, what did you learn from that that might be helpful to others? Because we see companies now that have gone through the same thing because of the economic downturn, but what lessons did you learn through that that you wish you'd known before that, or what might you have done differently if you had, you talked a little bit about the cost structure and some things, yeah. but what did you learn from that experience that might be helpful to those listening? Well, I did a, after, about a couple years after that period, I did a 10 lessons learned from uh, the downturn, mm -hmm. and lesson number one was the time to get ready for the next downturn is during the next upturn. Uh -huh. In other words, don't overhire, don't overextend yourself. Uh, lesson number two was don't start R&D projects or new initiatives during an upturn that you're not willing to keep during a downturn That's because a if one. you're going to be constantly starting things and canceling them, it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. So only do things that are really strategic and really critical. Um, and so really managing your cost structure, keeping it lean, not, not uh, getting overextended um, and, and on the upturn is, is, is key. Uh, another one is, of course, around cash. Mm -hmm. sure. uh, conserve cash in the upturn the best you can and get and bank it for a rainy day because, you know, you get all this pressure from Wall Street to, mm -hmm. you know, buy back your stock or give them dividends and all this stuff. But at the end of the day, if you're going to have a 60% downturn in revenue, <clears throat> you're going to need mm -hmm. cash. So, um, And I'm not sure a lot of companies learned that lesson from the, the tech bubble burst that would have helped them get through the current economic yeah. downturn, Although unfortunately. Although I think people went, tech companies who had gone through the bubble before were better right. positioned this time than last time. The rest of the economy hadn't but learned the, that uh, lesson. <laughs> and I think we got better about managing inventories mm -hmm. and things like that. So it was, but it was still traumatic. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's always traumatic, but, um, but managing cash, managing your assets, keeping your expense structure you know, lean and mean in spite of the fact you're, you know, you're doing well and growing uh, a lot in an upturn, I think is really critical. So one of the things that you all had to do, and I know you worked hard not to, but you ended up having to lay off a fairly significant right. number of people during that stretch. And a lot of companies have had to do that over the last few years. My sense of what I've read about that was that you know, as you said, people sort of understood it. It was painful. They wished it hadn't happened to them. How did you manage those um, layoffs and the and the issues with employees, both those that left and those that stayed, so that the company could sort of continue to come out of it and be successful? Because the employee side in a downturn is so critical, especially when yep. you lose a lot of people, and it's hard on a company. Well, it's hard, and, and um, you know, it takes a, a lot of communication and a lot of hard work. Uh, one of the things that uh, my management and team and I did is we set a very high bar mm -hmm. for how we wanted to do the layoffs. Um, some companies uh, 
you know, hired a firm, brought people into a room, had the firm notify the people they were gone the next mm-hmm. day. I mean, some companies... I think you know, I saw that on the movie yeah, recently, took, right? <laughs> took, a, took a fairly brutal approach, yeah, yeah. exactly, in the movie. Um, we took a different approach, and we said, look, everybody who leaves is a potential customer, mm-hmm. a potential um, supplier, and we want to treat every individual with dignity and respect. And we set a pretty high bar. I said that every individual who was notified had to be notified in person by their boss. Mm-hmm. You know, no emails, no, no third party mm-hmm. informing them that their uh, job is eliminated. And we also kept reinforcing people to, to people that this was not about them. This was not that they were doing a bad job. And people take it so personally, and it's hard not to. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, when you have to resize the company, you have to let a lot of really good people go. And as sad as it is, uh, that that's the reality of it. So we kept reinforcing this is not about them. This is not about, this is about the industry. We're not the only ones doing this. Uh, we um, we went asked our supervisors to go the extra mile and help people through the transition. And I was actually quite proud of the way we came through this. Um, I don't know if you recall, but uh, in 2001, uh, we were still number... Um, 31 on the on the uh, Fortune Best mm-hmm. Place to Work mm-hmm. list, sure. in spite of the fact that we were doing layoffs. And in fact, there was an article about us that said how you can lay off a third of your employees and still have them love you, which was, uh, I think, a great testimony to our management mm-hmm. team, not me so much, but all the people around the world who you know, went the extra mile to help people through this tough time. So you currently sit on several boards right. of directors. Um, how is your view of the company sort of different as a board member than it was as CEO uh, or senior executive? And what about being a senior executive or CEO has sort of helped you in being an effective board member? Well, um, being on a board is, is very different. And I think some people have a, a difficulty understanding mm-hmm. that difference. You know, a CEO, the last thing they want is the board to tell them how to run the company. Right. Uh, I think a, C, a good CEO um, wants to be able to use the board for advice, for input. Certainly there are fiduciary responsibilities of the board. But, um, but, the, uh, but the board has to understand that the, the CEO is the one who's going to run the company. And if they don't like the way it's being run, then they can fire the CEO. But... It's not their job to micromanage or, or tell the CEO what, what should be, he or she should be doing. Uh, and that's a transition. So I think you just have to bite your tongue sometime, mm-hmm. even though sometimes you think you know the answer right. or think you know what Step you're Step out of that doing. CEO mindset. Yeah. Remember, that's not what you're doing now. Yeah, you're rep- and the other thing is you are representing shareholders. Sure. You have to wear a big hat and say, mm-hmm. this is, you know, what's in the best interest of the, of the shareholders in this, uh, in this situation. So that's, that's one aspect mm-hmm. of being on boards. But the reason that I enjoy being on boards is there's another piece of it, which I think I can uniquely bring compared to um, somebody who hasn't been a CEO, mm-hmm. and that is I can be a coach. So right. one of the reasons that I, um, you know, I've joined a number of mm-hmm. boards is that as companies go global, as companies deal with strategic issues, as they build scale, try to build culture, you know, I have a fair amount of experience of that in my HP and Agilent life. So, um, you know, I, I try to meet with CEOs uh, on, mm-hmm. from my board separately, 
you know, most of them seek me out from time to time when they have a challenge or think something they're wrestling with. Not just me, but other board members sure. who are who have had you know similar kind of experiences. So, so you can kind of use a good CEO will use a board um, as a as a um, sounding board and try to get some inputs um, before before the more formal board meetings. What advice might you give someone who is? is not on a, a board at this point, might have interests, you know, in a senior level in an organization that might help them prepare for that type of a role. Obviously, we're seeing a lot more turnover in those kind of positions. Yeah. People are serving on fewer boards, so there's a, there, there need to be more people out there that are able and willing to serve in that capacity. It's very challenging now. So what advice might you give someone that was interested in, in going down that path at some point? Well, it depends on where they are in the organization. Sure. You know, when, when I, you know, and I've done a lot of board recruiting, mm -hmm. including my own board at Agilent, and um, usually you, you look for people that have specific skills. So you want a finance person, or right. you want a marketing person, or you want an operations person, or you want, you know, somebody that has some, um, you know, major change management or turnaround sure. experience. So you look for people that have you know specific skills, and um, so I think for people that are in specific functional areas like marketing or or finance is really um, you know taking advantage of opportunities to work with their own boards. You know, mm -hmm. having experience maybe in smaller company boards uh, will um, will be a good training ground to understand uh, what the role is for a bigger company board uh, from their expertise. I think it's harder for somebody who. Um, um, you know, the, the many boards nowadays. Once you once you fill certain slots, mm -hmm. you need a certain number of finance people. You probably right. want a couple, one or two operations people. And most boards are looking for people that have um, senior executives' experience, mm -hmm. either as a CEO or an executive vice right. president of a big company, because boards should really focus on strategic mm -hmm. issues, not operational issues. Right. <clears throat> and I think so many people you know, think that, well, I'm really good at doing the day-to-day -day things, but that doesn't prepare them for right. a board. On a board, you're dealing with, gee, do we make this big acquisition? Do we move the business in this direction? Mm -hmm. You know, it tends to be bigger, more strategic questions. So I think having some understanding and experience in this, even within their current jobs, mm -hmm. is, is important. So one of the questions I always like to ask our uh, Dell's speakers is about values that drive uh, kind of who they are as a leader. And I do that because our mission in the business school uh, talks about developing value-centered leaders and advancing responsible business practice. So I find it interesting to hear from people that, who provide leadership or leaders in all different kinds of industries and different walks of life. What are sort of the core values that they have tried to live by as a leader, and why are those so important to them? So I would like to hear that from you, Ned. Well, I mean, my values, I think the, the reason I stayed at HP for 33 mm -hmm. years and stayed at, you know, Agilent um, for almost seven was, um, you know, HP's values and my values are very much aligned. Uh -huh. I mean, it's, it, to me, um, I'm, I'm um, you know, I'm, I'm not... Uh, setting financial goals for myself. I never even set a, a position goal. I never even set out to be a CEO. It wasn't one of my goals when I started working. I never even thought about it. And, um, you know, I just, I just um, have this deep feeling and belief in people. Mm -hmm. And I, I like what motivates me is 
uh, kind of seeing things become reality, taking uh, starting new businesses, you know, seeing uh, seeing an organization that was struggling all of a sudden just start blossoming and excel, seeing individuals that you coach and mentor go on and do great things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to me, it's it's about that as opposed to the uh, you know all the other trappings right. of, of of leadership. Um, so I never um, I, my own values are very much um, about enjoying what I'm doing, making sure that I'm in a situation that I feel like I uh, am enjoying what I'm doing and making a difference. Uh, I. Um, as I said, I never set out to be a CEO, and I, the advice I give people when they ask me about career advice is find something you like to do and do it the mm-hmm. best you can. And that's frankly what I did. And one day I woke up and I was a CEO. I knew it wasn't, it just. Your career sort of took care of itself yeah, at that exactly. point. Exactly. Yeah. I just, if I didn't, wasn't a CEO, I probably would have been, you know, very happy because I did a lot of fun things and met a lot of great people. I like the people I work with, I like the culture and the organization. Uh, and um, those things were very important to me. We, we did an interesting study a couple of years ago, at, or actually a number of years ago now, at, at Agilent. What is it that keeps people you know, in an organization? How do you build loyalty? And it usually comes down to how people answer three questions. Number one is, do I work for a firm that I believe in that is doing good things, that, that is um, winning in the marketplace and making a difference in the world? And then two is, do I work with a group of people that I like, that I like coming to work every day and they support me, they're, they're good team players, they respect you know, what I do and contribute, and you know, I just like working with them. And finally, do I have a job that's challenging and interesting and where I can learn something and grow and where I feel recognized and rewarded for what I do? It's very simple. And if you're in situations like that, um, you know, then you're, you're probably doing pretty well. So to me, Finding the company, HP and Agilent, was a key thing. Working with a group of people that I liked, and then always having, seemed like I never ran out of, you know, challenging things to do. You know, you don't sound much like an engineer talking about your leadership and approach. You sound much more like a human behaviorist in the process, (laughs) which I find quite fascinating. That's my background is in behavior, uh, in organizational behavior. Is that something that evolved in your leadership style because of the influence of HP, or has that just sort of always been inherently a part of you having this sort of deep care and concern for the people around you? Because it's sort of not stereotypically what we think about someone who comes out of an engineering background. Yeah, I, th- I think it's, if I look back to my, um, you know, my, some of the things I did as a, as a kid and uh-huh. scouting and right. other things, and, you know, I, I always, um, I, I enjoyed leadership, but, but to me, leadership was all about um, a teamwork. It was mm-hmm. all about, you know, working together with others. It wasn't, in fact, Dave, here again, Dave Packard and Bill Hewlett used to give the analogy that, <clears throat> that um, at HP, it's, it's, it's like a football team. Everybody has a do- job, and if no job is more important than anybody else, the person mm-hmm. who blocks is as important as the person throwing the ball right. or catching the ball. So everybody's equally important, and if everybody does their job, the team wins. And I guess that's always been my view. Is, um, and so uh, my very first management job, I was in research and development for about three, and a half, three years, a little more, and then I moved over to a marketing job, and after maybe about six, nine months, I ended up supervising about four or five people. And I'll never forget, my, my first boss came by after a few months of this and said, Ned, you're not being yourself. 
because my my mental image of management was plan, do, check, act. You know, that's kind of the rhythm. And and he said, Ned, be yourself, and that always stuck with me. And and so, to me, my leadership style is be myself, and and you know, interact with people. You know, be honest, direct, and you know, everything takes care of itself. Well, that's pretty good leadership advice for us to conclude <laughs> our discussion on Be Yourself. So, Ned, thank you so much for joining us. It's been very insightful, and we appreciate your time. Good. Thank you. Well, Linda, what a rare opportunity to be able to speak with uh, such a such an icon in this industry. Well, it was, and Ned has such a wonderful perspective on both the history of Silicon Valley and the future ahead, and so we were really privileged to have him with us this certainly, year. Certainly, certainly. Well, uh, tell us who we have lined up next for the series. Well, we turn right back around in Santa Clara on May 15th and have John Figueroa, who's president of U.S. Pharmaceutical for McKesson Corporation, and we're particularly pleased to have John with us because he's one of our alumni. That's right. Well, uh, let me invite our listeners to visit us at bschool.pepperdine.edu slash DELS. That's D-E-L-S. You can visit that site to learn more about the Dean's Executive Leadership Series or to register for an event to attend in person if you will be in the area. You can also visit us at iTunes U and at YouTube to watch uh, videos of the series or to download a podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening. In a tough economy... Investing in yourself is one of the best investments you can make. And an education is something that can never be repossessed, foreclosed upon, or lose its value. That's why now is the perfect time to earn your master's in business from Pepperdine University. Because Pepperdine's exceptional MBA programs are built around real-world curriculum, not just theory. So you'll gain knowledge that can be applied immediately on the job, increasing your value in the workplace. During the past century, our country has survived over a dozen recessions. The economy will eventually turn around, and when it does, you'll be ahead with a degree from Pepperdine. You'll also have access to Pepperdine's extensive alumni network, career development opportunities, and employment resources. Visit bschool.pepperdine.edu today. Pepperdine University's prestigious Grazio Dio School of Business and Management.